Right. I know for some of you, this is your first time in our sanctuary, um, and so welcome, because we have done this before, done stuff in this building before. We met for winter session downstairs last year. We're trying it out this year, so your feedback would actually be helpful um, as uh, we just explore different options for this, but welcome to our church building. Uh, two quick, um, as they say, housekeeping items. Um, first of all, if you need to use the restroom or just get up for any reason, it is evening time. It is nighttime. I will not be offended if you need to stretch or you need to wake yourself up or you need to whatever, get a glass of water or use the restrooms which are in the uh, uh, entryway if you uh, miss them as you came on in. Uh, so feel free to do that. Also, there are two handouts that you should have seen on your way in on the tables. And so you can grab one of those or two of those um, if you'd like to. That might help you track along. Or if you're like, man, I'm just kicking back and I'm listening. That's okay too. That, uh, you, you do that. Um, okay, here's, this is an important thing. Uh, some of you know the expression double fisting. Uh, today, I am double clicking. So the computer I have in front of me is not synced up with the computer that's running. This, so I'm going to have to click twice simultaneously. And that means I'm almost for sure going to mess this up. So if it sounds like I'm talking about something that's not on a slide or it sounds, you think I should have clicked something and I haven't, there's a good chance you're right. So just point at the screen and that'll remind me to take a peek and adjust and, and we'll figure this out. Cool. Sound good? All right. Uh, let me say a word of uh, prayer again. Uh, let me just uh, ask for the Lord's blessing and then we'll get into this. Jesus, Clear our minds, move our hearts, energize our learning. Do this for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So there are a number of different sub-disciplines or topics that are typically studied under the banner of theology. Uh, different subject areas that one can study. And so you have what you might call soteriology. Uh, that's the theology of how one is saved. What do we find in the Bible about how one comes to salvation in Christ? There's theology. That's theology proper. That's uh, the doctrine of God. Who is God? What does the Bible teach us about God? There's anthropology. Uh, what does the Bible teach us about man or humanity? The doctrine of man. Ecclesiology, down over here, that word said, hey, nobody pointed. <laughs> nobody pointed. You, can I trust you all? You need to help me out. Ecclesiology. Ecclesiology, uh, the doctrine of the church. What is the gathering of God's people all about? Well, the word that we're looking at today, you've heard it used a million times already, is the word Christology. That is simply the study of the person and the work of Christ. And so what we're going to do across the next three weeks is simply raise questions like, who is Jesus? What does the Bible teach us about his nature? Uh, tell us about his character. Uh, what has he come to do? What did he do when he lived and when he died and when he rose again? What's he doing now? What's he going to do when he returns, as the Bible promises that he will return. Christology is the study of the person and the work of Christ, who he is and what he came to do. And so what we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks is simply a three-part breakdown of this topic of Christology. So first today, I'm going to cover what you might describe as the nature or the natures of Christ and then next week we'll cover, uh, Pastor Russ will cover the states of Christ. 
Um, and that doesn't mean which states in the United States root for Jesus. No, that's not what that means. You'll have to come back and find out what that means. Um, but, uh, and then lastly, the offices of Christ as we get more into the work of Jesus. What did he come to do? I want to just dive us right into uh, starting to talk about the nature of Christ. And I want to use the text here of what's, uh, what is called the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was a 17th century document that was written in England, 1646 specifically, as one of the most robust and thorough summaries of all that the Bible teaches. And uh, what we have in front of us is actually a modern English uh, version of that because the original can be hard to read sometimes. But this paragraph here that I've broken into subsections gives us a pretty good overview of what the Bible teaches us about the nature or natures of Christ. So let me just read through it together with you. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being truly and eternally God of one substance and equal with the Father, that God, that Son of God, did, when the fullness of time had come, take upon himself man's nature with all its essential properties and common frailties, yet without sin. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the womb of the Virgin Mary and of her substance, in this way, two whole natures, the divine and the human, perfect and distinct, were inseparably joined together in one person without being changed, mixed, or confused. This person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. So there you have it. That's a Fairly succinct and yet also fairly dense summary of what you might describe as the Bible's teaching on the nature of Christ. And so let me just run through it briefly with you again. So where this paragraph starts is with this idea that the second person of the Trinity, so the Bible teaches us that God is three persons in one God. I'll not go into that any more than that. That's for another class on the Trinity, but God is three persons in one God, and the second person of the Godhead is called the Son of God, who existed from before time, existed eternally, and yet one day took upon himself man's nature, being born as a baby, as we just celebrated, what holiday? Christmas, right? The story of what's called the incarnation of the Son of God. Incarnation is a word built on the Latin word for taking on flesh, carnes, right? So God, the, the Son of God, God, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh, became a human being, and we're told with all its essential properties and common frailties yet without sin, which means he became a human being in every way except that he didn't sin. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and of her substance. And in this way, the two whole natures, he was both divine and human. They were joined together in one person. That's why I have this little icon here. One plus one equals one. The divine nature, the human nature joined together in one person, namely in Christ. 
And that person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. And so what we're going to do with that statement is simply track through what I believe is sort of the heart of the summary, that second uh, to last paragraph there. Er, er, no. There. So second to last sentence there. This person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ. This is going to be the framework for what we're going to talk about today. This person, the Son of God, become man, is truly God on the one hand, truly man, a full, real human being, and yet he's not two people, but he's one person. Two natures in one person, one Christ. And what we're going to do with that last piece is, well, what does this matter for his work as Christ? What difference does it make that he is fully a human being and fully God? What difference does it make to the cross and the resurrection? What difference does it make to the gospel? So let's go ahead and dive into this first segment that Christ is truly God. So we're going to talk about this under a couple different headers. So first of all, the Bible teaches us what we might call the pre-existence of Christ. I think a lot of people can forget this, that Christ himself actually existed even before he was born. The Son of God existed from before time began because he was himself eternally God. How do we know? Jesus told us. If you know in John 17, this is often called the high priestly prayer, He's preparing. This is the night before Jesus was crucified. He's praying to God. He prays for a number of different things. And one of the things that he says in the introduction uh, to his prayer is this, John 17, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence, namely, after I finish and complete my work as Messiah, dying and rising again here on earth, and when I go back up to heaven to join you in your presence, glorify me. With the glory I had with you before the world began. So Jesus had a glory before the world began, which makes no sense if he was simply a human being because he was born about 33 years prior to the point at which he prayed this prayer, unless he actually himself was truly God. So Jesus himself told us that. He indicated so also earlier in John 8, 58. Again, we're talking about the pre-existence of Christ before all of creation, before his human birth, in fact. This is in a dialogue that he's having with some religious leaders. He said to them, long story short, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, of course, the curiosity there is that the person of Abraham we can find in the Old Testament scriptures, starting in Genesis 12, that's where his story begins, and that was 2,000 years before Jesus was born. And so if you pay attention to the grammar that Jesus uses, and you might be familiar with this, let's talk about it again. Before Abraham was 2,000 years ago, I, Jesus says, am. Now, there's two things that are important here. Number one, Jesus is clearly using the personal covenant name of God in the Old Testament, 
which was revealed to the Israelites when Moses said, hey, what should we call you? God says, I am who I am. I am the self-existent one. I am the verb to be that has no tense. Past, present, future is all embodied in me because I owe my existence to no one. And I always am everywhere we are. I am. Jesus takes that name and he applies it to himself, a clear claim to a, a divinity to those who have ears to hear it. But in addition to that, it's also this claim to predating Abraham as the God who always was. Christ, again, in John 8, was claiming to be the Son of God who always existed before the creation of the world. The Apostle John elaborates this a little bit in the beginning of his gospel, gospel uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 and 14. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and so God the Son already existed in the beginning of all time, and the Word was God, and the Word eventually became flesh. And in Galatians 4, the Apostle Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son born of a woman. So Christ was truly God in the sense that he actually existed even before his birth, even before time began. He's also truly God in this sense that he's omnipotent. That word means all-powerful. There's tons of examples of how Jesus displays his omnipotence while he was on earth. His miracles are the easiest thing to point to. And of course, miracles in and of themselves don't prove the point. Because a miracle worker simply can access the power of God, that doesn't necessarily mean that that person is God himself. So we need to be careful with how we use this argument. But we do have places like in Mark 4, when Jesus is caught in a big storm together with his disciples in a boat, and they all think they're going to die, and they say, hey, Jesus, save us. And finally, after sleeping through half the storm, Jesus stands up, and he does this. We're told in verse 20. Uh, 5 through 41, when he awoke and rebuked the wind, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who, is the, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? So Jesus is showing his authority over all of creation, not just as a miracle worker, but as the one who actually created the very winds and the seas themselves. And so, of course, the disciples, upon witnessing this, uh, didn't say, ooh, do it again. No, they were terrified. They were terrified because they had a sense of who it was, just a sense of who it was that they might be standing in front of. They were afraid, and they said, who is this that even the weather obeys him. They were appealing to his authority, not just his neat tricks, but the authority with which he commanded nature. We also have evidence of the omniscience of Christ in the Bible. And this, of course, means that Christ knows all things. In Mark 2, one of many examples, we're told that, again, as he was uh, interacting with religious leaders that were trying to trip him up, we're told here, Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? This is not the only example, but there are several others too, where we know that Jesus can actually read minds. He's talking with people, and he says, I know what you're thinking, uh, or you don't want to answer this question because, because of this and because of that. He can read their hearts. He can read their minds. He can know all 
he knows all things, and he certainly knows more than normal human beings can know a testimony to him being truly God. We have evidence of the omnipresence of Christ as well when he teaches in Matthew 18, 12. So omnipresence, by the way, of course, means that he is everywhere. Uh, there's a sense in which he teaches in Matthew 18, 20, that he can pass through walls. He can be limited by no physical space or building or person. In fact, he says, for where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Friends, how many do we have in this room? More than two or three. Fellowshipping together in Christ's name as we are, learning about these things. Jesus is with us. He has promised that he is present with us. Somehow, Christ himself is present everywhere. He is truly God. Another example, Matthew 28, 20, before his departure, he gives it the tail end of what's often called the Great Commission when he says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey. He says this as a word of promise. At the end of that, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In some sense, Christ is everywhere and with us always. He is truly God. The eternality and immortality of Christ, meaning Christ is eternal. We already touched on that when talking about his preexistence, but also his immortality. So again, we said in John 17, Jesus refers to the glory that he had with God the Father before the world began. So Jesus existed in eternity past, and he'll always exist in eternity future. But he also said this in John 2, 19, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days, which, of course, was a metaphor that he was using for his own death and resurrection. I mean, listen carefully to the words that Jesus uses. Destroy this temple, my body, I'm going to die, and I will raise it again. I will raise this crucified body again in three days. I will raise my own dead body in three days after having been crucified. Now, the Bible is clear that the primary agents of Christ's resurrection is the Holy Spirit as well as the Father. But there is a sense in which Jesus here is claiming agency, that there's a sense in which he exists even outside of his own dead body. Once he is crucified and physically, humanly put to death, I will raise it again. He kind of alludes to the same idea here in John chapter 10. The reason my father loves me is I lay down my life. He's talking about his death, only to take it up again. There he's talking about his resurrection. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. So he can die and then exercise the authority of God to take up or raise up his own body, which can only mean not only that he has that power as God himself, but that he himself is immortal. You can kill my body, but you can never kill me. We'll spell that out a little bit more. Uh, uh, second to last here, the worship worthiness of Christ. Again, we're trying to make the case that the Bible gives clear testimony to the divinity of Jesus. He's truly God. He's worthy of worship. So, John 20, after the resurrection of Christ, of course, there was one disciple who is most tagged with being the doubter among them. Of course, I'm sure every one of them were doubting in some way, shape, or form. He just got uh, the spotlight put on him a little bit. That's Thomas. And when Jesus said, here, go ahead, touch 
my scars. Uh, come and, and believe that I really have risen from the dead. Thomas did so, and then he fell to the ground, and he said, my Lord and my God. Now, you have to understand in the Jewish context, the monotheistic Jewish context, all of these disciples would have been uh, uh, trained in Jewish thought and were immersed in Jewish religious culture. It would have been complete blasphemy to bow your knee and to worship, let alone identify any human being as my God, if all they were were a human being. Uh, This was a bold proclamation, a uh, loud confession of the divinity of Christ taken from the mouth of Thomas. Uh, The Apostle Paul says this, Philippians 2.10, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the Apostle Paul also says in Titus 2.13, the glory, he refers to the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. Uh, lastly, we have the evidence of the sinlessness of Christ. We have various portions of the New Testament that bear witness to the fact that Jesus was a human being in every way, but he actually never sinned. Uh, he did not ever respond to a person's harsh words selfishly or in a retaliatory manner. He uh, did not lust with his eyes. He did not misuse his money in a greedy fashion. He did not manipulate his relationships to his own benefit. He didn't uh, participate with complicity in Roman injustice. And he, all these go down the list. He was sinless, sinless, sinless. And the Bible says so, 1 John 3, 5, and him, in him is no sin, we're told. Pretty point blank. In Jesus, there is no sin. In Hebrews 4, 15, as the writer of the Hebrews is talking about Jesus' role as the Old Testament high priest, we're told he, we have a high priest in Jesus who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. So he was tempted in every way, to sin, but never actually gave in to sin. Who can do that except for one who is also God? So the Bible also in this manner points us to the divinity of Christ. Now, of course, these things might seem obvious to you. Maybe they're not obvious. Maybe they're new, but they certainly, this certainly was a claim that tripped up a number of different people within the church and certainly outside of the church. Jesus is fully and truly God. Some people said, I don't think so. There were heresies in history, a couple, that denied the divinity of Christ and the most, uh, I was going to say the most popular, that's not quite the right way to describe it, the most significant, consequential of them uh, is called Arian Arianism, Arianism. Um, and it's named that because um, one of the chief proponents of it, teachers of this heresy, was a man by the name of Arius who lived at the end of the third century into the fourth century in Alexandria, Virginia, no, Egypt, Egypt, far away, far away. Um, and basically taking a couple passages like the ones that we have in front of us here, developed a theology that essentially denied 
the deity of Christ. And so in places like Revelation 3.14, that makes references, reference to Jesus as the beginning of the creation of God. He reasoned, oh, well, if he's the beginning of the creation of God, which most mom, modern commentators now say should might be better nuanced as the origin of the creation of God. He said, well, this is the beginning, so that must mean if he's the beginning, he was the first to be created. So Christ was in some fashion created by God the Father. Sure, no, no, he's still supernatural, still probably existed before the world began, but was not actually one with God the Father from eternity past, but actually was the first thing the Father had ever made, and through him then made all the rest of the things that were made. And so also Colossians 1.15 says, the, calls Jesus, describes Christ as the firstborn of all creation, and Arius says, well, there it is again. So he's the firstborn of creation, which means he's included within the sphere of the created world rather than one who existed outside of the created world. And then they're tripped up over language like this that we find in a well, well-known passage, and I forgot to write down the reference here, but that's John three sixteen. And you may or may not know the words of it. You might know the reference from football games and basketball games, but here's the language that you find in that verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his... Well, depends on when you were born. (laughs) More modern translations like the NIV and the ESV and other modern translations now describe that phrase that follows uh, or renders that phrase as the one and only son. But if you are familiar with the King James or older translations, you are familiar with the language only begotten son. And so, of course, there have been centuries and centuries and hours and hours and years and years of debate over the meaning of this strange word that in the Greek can, uh, is the word, uh, the Greek word monogenes, which uh, puts together two uh, prefix mono, which means, you can guess, one or only. So that's where we get the idea of one and only son, that, that, the emphasis on that first prefix. And the second half of the word genes which comes from the verb ganao, which gen, genesis, beginning, or birth. So you put these two words together and you get some idea, some sense of the, the generation of a thing, the emergence of a thing, the beginning of a thing, the birth of a thing. And so the word actually is used of human relations to describe the birth of babies and the birth of people. But in this case, it's used to describe the Son of God coming into this world. In what sense was Jesus, the Son of God, begotten? Oh, all the fights and conflicts and debates over that word. Begotten, what does that even mean? I'll tell you the quick answer. At the end of the day, we don't know. But we think we have an idea of what it doesn't mean or can't mean because of this controversy with Arius. Because see, based upon these other interpretations of these other passages, Arius and his team concluded that this word begotten or only begotten could only mean that Jesus actually was, or the Son of God was created by God. He was made by God. He was the firstborn of creation and the beginning of creation in the sense that he was the first element created through which all other things were created. So in other words, one theologian summarized the teaching of Arius in this fashion, that Christ was a pre-temporal, that means before time. So yeah, not just a normal human being, pre-temporal, superhuman creature, the first of the creatures, 
not God, and yet more than man. But the problem, of course, is that the only phrase that really matters in there, the decisive one, is that the claim was that Jesus was not God. Sub-bullet points there, it was believed that Jesus was created by God the Father, and therefore, the only conclusion could be that the Son of God was therefore subordinate to God. Here's how the church responded in the fourth century. Uh, You might be familiar with what's often described as the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., In the city of Nicaea, uh, a number of different church leaders gather together not to create any doctrines. I think it's important to say that these days because people talk about the early church's councils as if they created new doctrines, but rather what they worked to do was to clarify old ancient doctrines that were being challenged, uh, to bring the authority of their leadership and the church to bear in order to clarify and define, but not manufacture and not on the spot to create what wasn't already there. And what came out of that council was what is called the Nicene Creed, which was a statement. Creed simply means a statement of belief. Creed comes from the Latin credo, which is I believe, translated I believe. This was a uh, statement of faith that used to be used at people's baptisms, And so people would recite this before they went into the dunk tank. Um, But there's a a rich explanation of who God is, and you can find that on the handout that you have in front of you. You can read it later on. But I underlined the key part that actually is pertinent to what we're talking about here, where the authors of the creed clarified who Christ was when they said this. I'm going to start at the top and then jump down. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten. So they just used the word again, just like we find it in the Bible. So they didn't define, this is what begotten means. They just said, the Bible says he was begotten. We don't know exactly how that works, but this is what it doesn't mean. Not made. (laughs) Begotten of the Father, but not made. Being of the same substance as the Father by whom all things were made. Remember, Arius' claim was that Jesus was the first created thing of all things that God had created and therefore could not be of equal nature and substance as God himself. And so the whole history of church doctrine around these questions of Christology came down to a debate around the phrasing of that word right there, that phrase, same substance, and it all boiled down to the Greek word homoousios, or its alternative, homoousios, which of course has the difference of only one letter, the letter I, or iota in Greek. Homo means same, homoi means similar. Same or similar, usios means substance or being. Was the Son of God of the same substance as God the Father? Or was he of close enough substance? Was he equal with God the Father? Or was he great but a notch below? And the declaration of the Council of Nicaea was that Christ was 
homoousios, not homoiousios, the same nature or substance as the Father by whom all things were made. And so there ended all controversies. No, just kidding. Uh, but it was a significant, decisive moment in, in the life of the church as Arianism was a, a grave threat uh, to Orthodox doctrine uh, concerning the divinity of Christ. I want to run through one second example that's a more modern one, and it wouldn't be fair to call this a heresy. And I want to be careful here because I'm citing a real person uh, that some of you may know, and this is Rachel Held Evans. But I, I, I want to be gentle here because... My main, I'm going to say this up front very clearly. My point in bringing this up is that all of us are vulnerable to sliding in the direction of vague doctrine that starts to sound like a position that the church has historically deemed as being heretical or counter-biblical. And we're all prone to that, myself included. And that's why I think this is a uh, helpful illustration. So I am not condemning Rachel in, in any way, uh, though I think she is making a mistake here in this statement. I have too. So let me describe a tweet that she put out in November that kind of caused some uproar in Twitter's fear, which means 200 people care. Um, but uh, no, maybe more than that. But this is what she said. Let me read it. It's fear of Jesus's humanity, I think. That keeps us from interpreting the story of the Syrophoenician Canaanite woman as a story about, this is my highlighting, a man changing his mind about his racial bias when confronted with the humanity of another person. But that's a tricky one. Okay, so what's she saying? So number one, she's definitely making a comment about Christology. From the very beginning, she says, I fear it's, it's fear of Jesus' humanity. In other words, she's, she's uh, supposing that it's because we don't really want to see Jesus as, as human as he truly was. So this is a good invitation. Do we see Jesus as truly human as he really was as revealed in the Bible? She's using this story of the Syrophoenician or Canaanite woman. And this, of course, is a story where uh, a Gentile woman challenges Jesus a little bit as to whether or not she has a right to the kingdom of God because she's not a Jewish person. She approaches him and Jesus has an exchange with her. And of course, she would have been a victim of racism and ostracism in the Jewish community. And that would have been publicly known and such. And so she's challenging Jesus and Jesus exchanges with her. And so here's what she concludes, what Rachel concludes, that this story is, she says, about a man, she's talking about Jesus there, changing his mind about his racial bias when confronted with the humanity of another person. And so, of course, what she's supposing or suggesting is that Jesus actually was responding to his own racial bias. In other words, Jesus was racist. He sinned the sin of racism and that is what he had to learn or change on in that moment. But we don't see that interpretation, she would say, because we're afraid of seeing just how human Jesus is. And again, I'm appreciating the framing of what she's doing here, but what has she just claimed? Jesus was sinful, which is a denial of his divinity in a direct uh, contradiction of scriptures that we have already reviewed. Interestingly, even when she was challenged on this, her, she followed up with this line there at the bottom. She said, honestly, I think it might be a mistake to call racial bias sinful. Because everyone started saying, are you saying Jesus 
was not sinless? And she's like, well, maybe racial bias isn't sinful. And what's interesting to me about that is she had made a proposition that now she needed to defend. And so now you get cornered in a way where you have to start adjusting other convictions and beliefs and doctrines. So now suddenly, well, I'm going to stand by what I said, that Jesus changed his mind about his racism, but maybe racism in the form of racial bias isn't sinful then. And then now where are we heading in this conversation? Because of course racial bias, if it's anything, it is sinful, if, if it's racism and stuff. So there's this interesting tendency. There's this interesting tendency, I think, that we can have to try to uh, take different convictions and doctrines throughout Scripture and sort of figure out where we land. But we have to be aware of where we're pulling from and where we're drifting and where we're sliding and what we're defending and where we're trying to not go. And, and again, I'm using this example because it happens all the time. I'm not calling Rachel a heretic on this issue. I'm saying this is exactly how unbiblical theology begins to get formed in our thinking. If we have a clear understanding of where the parameters of our categories might be, and that doesn't mean that we're not wrestling with real tensions, that maybe we can come up with a vibrant theology, understanding of Christ, but without actually sliding into historic um, doctrinal errors. This person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ. Let me run really quickly uh, through a couple of points here around this idea that Jesus is also truly man. Christ is truly man. Uh, He's truly man in this sense that we're told in Scripture that Jesus had a human body. He had a human body. So he was born like a human being is born. He grew, Luke 2 says, the child grew and became strong. Jesus got tired. I mean, I I love John 4, 6 here. Um, Not because I love that Jesus was tired, but it just really enriches my reading of this scripture when we're just told that Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down. (laughs) You know, our, our Savior, his legs got weary enough where he's like, can I just take a seat here? You know, I mean, how many of us have felt that even maybe today. We're like, you sit down. Jesus too felt that way. Uh, He touched. Here he's inviting uh, his disciples, see my hands and feet, that it is I myself. But he touched touched people and we have evidence of that throughout scripture. Uh, Jesus got hungry and he ate food. And of course we know that he died physically as well. Jesus was truly man in that he had a human mind as as well. Uh, God the Son incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ had to learn things just like you and I have to learn. Uh, We're told in Luke 2 that he increased in wisdom. That meant he had to learn to read as a kid, had to learn to write, had to learn to talk, to obey. He had to grow in wisdom, meaning he had to learn not to touch fire, right? He had to learn how not to wreck his dad's home, right? All these kinds of things. Learn how to use a hammer and a nail and a saw as a carpenter, Right? Uh, So there's learning that was included, which, of course, learning implies limitation of knowledge. You only can learn if you didn't know something in advance. And so there's progress in the development of Jesus's humanity. We're also told that he had limited knowledge. 
Uh, Mark 13 is this fascinating place where we're told that Jesus indicates that the day of his return, when he was standing here on earth, he did not know when it was going to be that he would leave and then come back. So, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So Jesus, standing there before his disciples, could be asked a question, okay, you're going to heaven eventually, when are you coming back to make all things new? Jesus legitimately could say, I don't know. So as a human being, he had limited knowledge. Now, I'm going to finesse that a little bit, a little bit later, but this is an indication that he was human, just like the rest of us. He had human emotions. Uh, The Son of God, incarnate, experienced anger. Mark 10, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant, we're told. He experienced sorrow. He experienced joy. Luke 10, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, responded to people. He experienced amazement, tears. Jesus wept. He empathized. Uh, Human emotions were part of Jesus' experience of life here on earth. And we know that he has a human soul as well. Um, he, uh, made, he grew in moral ability is what it should say, not great in moral ability. Uh, Jesus actually grew in moral ability. In, moral ability. in, in, in uh, Hebrews 5, we're told that he learned obedience. That Jesus, though the Son of God, had to actually take steps of, hey, this is how I follow God. This is how I can love. This is how people respond. This is how I can trust God. This is how I can stretch my trust in God. This is how I can follow even when I'm tempted to be afraid. This is how I can not retaliate when a little kid in the playground throws something at me, and now an adult is throwing something at me, and now an adult is is ruining my reputation, and I'm learning, and I'm learning, and now they're crucifying me. And at that point, I've learned to be able to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He actually grew in his moral capacity, moral ability. He also faced temptation, we're told, just as all of us do, temptation to sin. That's part of his humanity. And yet we're told that he was sinless. And we mentioned sinlessness in the last section as a piece of evidence that Christ was truly God. This is also evidence that he was truly man. Why? Sin is not natural to our human condition. Uh, The Bible actually tells us that we did not originally sin when in paradise, in the lives of our original parents, Adam and Eve, Uh, that sin was an intrusion into this world, was an, an infection, a corruption of our souls. And actually, to be truly human is to love perfectly, to love God and to love our neighbors. Finally, Uh, Christ was truly man in all these ways that we just described and all these, uh, with all these characteristics and he will be so forever. Let me, the the, the question can be raised. When was it that Jesus uh, might've most been expected to have divested himself of his humanity? Leave it behind or drop it. When? The cross, resurrection, Ascension, right? So he's a human being. He died and he rises again in victory. What? Let me get out of this tortured body here and just exist as a, 
a disembodied spirit. No, he was raised again bodily. And when he ascended into heaven, even more, now he's going to heaven. Now he's going back to where he came from. I mean, this is really interesting. Remember, he existed from before time began with God the Father, without a body, then came through the portal of his mother's womb and was born as a human being. Now he's going to go back to where he came from. It almost would be more logical, expected, that he would go back to the state, the prior state with which he existed, in which he existed for all of eternity, namely without a body. And yet we're told, Luke 24 As he was ascending into heaven, he lifted up his hands, physical hands that they could see and bless them while he was blessing them. In other words, his hands are still out and he's now floating, going up to heaven. In other words, with a body, in a body, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Jesus, this very day, sitting at his father's right hand, interceding for you, praying for you, is doing his ministry eternally in a human body. It's worth considering. And so, of course, the Bible tells us in summary, Hebrews 2, since the children, human beings, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, he had to be made like them in every respect. Jesus wasn't just kind of human. He was completely human. He was a true human being. And of course, Hebrews 14 makes the same four, makes the same claim. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So physically, morally, emotionally, body and soul, made like us in every way, truly man, except for sin. That's the Savior that we worship. We're going to take a break now. We're going to talk about some more juicy heresies when we get back. Um, But we're going to take a 15-minute break. And so you can uh, stretch your legs. You can grab some refreshments. Any special instructions, Justin, or truly man? And having gone through a number of different scriptures that describe these different attributes and characteristics of Christ, um, I want to talk about uh, one point of um, controversy um, or one form of heresy that we found in history um, that is often called docetism. And um, what docetism is, and this is, I think, a valuable uh, uh, point to, to play with a little bit. Uh, it com- docetism, what is that? It comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means to appear or to seem And so basically, thank you, to appear or to seem dokeo. So docetism is the erroneous belief that Jesus Christ was not actually a human being, but only appeared to be or seemed to be a human being. Justin, was the volume turned up a little bit? It's now ringing. If you can turn it down a little bit, maybe. Testing. All right. So here is um, one ancient writer who described it as such. um, The word was not incarnate, but only seems to be. So this is a, a denial of the humanity of Christ, but an erroneous affirmation that he still would have appeared to be a human being. 
You also have uh, more recent, well, still ancient, uh, but after the second, third century um, uh, period, um, version in another religious system of docetism, and that would be uh, in what's found in the Quran. And so Muslims, of course, understand that Christ was crucified and lived on this planet, uh, yet their denial is that he actually um, was God, um, or that he was God and only appeared to be a human being in the crucifixion itself. And so, for example, we have in Quran uh, this language, we slew the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, Allah's messenger. They slew him, not uh, nor crucified him, but appeared so unto them, but Allah took him up unto himself. Allah was ever mighty and wise. And so just to say in many different uh, corners of the church throughout history, as well as um, outside of the Christian tradition, uh, there's a wrestling with the humanity of Christ and even a denial of his humanity. And so, of course, going back to the Nicene Creed from the fourth century, we have language that clearly uh, affirms uh, the humanity of Christ and that denies errors such as docetism. So I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, who was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. So didn't just appear to be man, wasn't partially man, but was fully and truly man. There was in the following century, two centuries actually, uh, following century, 125 years later, in, in the middle of the fifth century, uh, another gathering council um, in, uh, in Chalcedon, and they produced a statement called, uh, that's often described as the Chalcedonian definition um, or the Chalcedonian declaration. And this was a response to a couple other heresies that we'll talk about in just a moment, but it does also at the same time clarify some of the errors that were inherent in docetic thought. So it says, our Lord Jesus Christ at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body. So not just that he had a physical body, but also he had a human soul of one substance with us as regards his manhood, like us in all respects, apart from sin. And so even in church history, we have this, this public affirmation again that Christ was truly a human being, shared in our humanity, made like us in every respect except for sin. And so pushing along, still working through this train of thought, this person, Christ, is truly God and truly man, yet one. Yet he is one. And of course, this clarification is that if you talk about Christ being truly God and then you talk about him being truly man, does this then mean that he was actually two persons? Does this mean that in having two natures that he actually was two beings? And the Bible's uh, clear statement is no, he is one person, uh, Divine and human, but one person. And here I'd like to introduce a technical um, theological term called the hypostatic union. And this is getting at the question that needs to be raised. Okay, you've got God, uh, Christ is very God and Christ is very man. Christ is fully God and Christ is fully man. But how do these two components of his personhood relate to each other? Uh, what's the nature of the interaction of these two parts 
of him? Um, how do they consist within him? So this word hypostatic union comes from the Greek word hypostasis or hypostasis, and that simply means substance or nature. And so hypostatic union is simply the union or the joining together of his human and divine nature. At the end of the day, it's a mystery. We don't know exactly how that works and, and how it all comes together. But we do know this, that it all started with his virgin birth. And what's interesting is, I wonder if the doctrine or the event of the virgin birth of Christ is something that is just not emphasized in the way that it used to be, uh, where we talk about the birth of Christ. Uh, but this past Christmas, how often uh, did you hear someone tell you or talk to, or did you mention not just that Christ was born or the Son of God was born, but that it was a virgin birth more specifically. Even if you believe it, it's not something that's often mentioned. If you sing traditional Christmas carols, you certainly sing those words, maybe sometimes awkwardly. It's not language that you use every day, but it's actually quite important. And why? Because of hypostatic union. The unique way in which Christ came into this world is the beginnings of what we understand as the hypostatic union of his divine and human nature. So, for example, in Matthew 1.18, you might be familiar with these words, we're told that his mother, Jesus' mother, Mary, was pledged or betrothed to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, in other words, before they had sexual intercourse, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So here, she was still a virgin. She had not had sexual union with a man, with Joseph, with whom she was betrothed, but she still got pregnant. How? By some miracle of the Holy Spirit. And so there we have the framework for the birth of Christ being both of a human, as a human event, as well as a divine event at the same time. Uh, Matthew elaborates later on when Joseph is visited by this angel because he doesn't know what to do. Should I uh, divorce or leave Mary? Because uh, certainly if she's pregnant, that could only mean one thing. Well, the angel explains, no, it could mean another thing. And it's that she, uh, is, uh, 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 let me just read it in verse 12. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Uh, so still born of a woman, but conceived by the Holy Spirit. Uh, human nature, divine nature brought into one. And you might be familiar with the language of the Apostles' Creed, which is a uh, statement of faith, the most common one, the most widely shared one around the world in global Christianity, which was written between the 4th and 7th century um, AD, and has a section here naming off different attributes of Christ, his nature, his character, his work. And it says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the, of the Virgin Mary. Those are Christological proclamations that we are making there. And it's proclamations around this doctrine or this subpoint called hypostatic union. Now, just to unpack this a little bit more, um, why was it that it was important for Christ not to have an earthly father? So why couldn't uh, God have just allowed Mary and Joseph to have intercourse like any normal human being would have, then to be conceived, and then God to find some other way to zap the child and make him into... Uh, there could have been another way, no? Well, there's a specific symbolism to what's going on here. 
And that is, why no earthly father? Why wasn't Joseph the father of Jesus? And it's because biblically, the, the descent that legal guilt and moral corruption in the human race was transmi- is transmitted by ordinary generation from birth to birth to birth. And legally, it's transmitted through Adam and therefore legally through the father's line. So that doesn't mean that the mother's line isn't also sinful and such, but there's a sense in which biblically the descent and the transmission of original sin, the legal guilt and moral corruption of the person is actually interrupted by Joseph not being the father of Jesus, but rather the Holy Spirit bringing about the conception of Christ. So this is the way in which biblically, uh, according to principles of scripture, uh, Christ is made to be sinless as he's born of the Holy Spirit and not of Adam. But then how about Mary? Uh, wouldn't that mean that Mary, okay, Mary still should then uh, be the source of Christ's sin? Is uh, he not corrupted by Mary's sin? Well, in the Protestant tradition, as I just mentioned, in principle, Adam's legal corruption is received through the Father, the Roman Catholic tradition um, has another solution for that, and that's called, as you may know, the term, the Immaculate Conception. Now, a lot of people actually um, misunderstand this doctrine as being a reference to the conception of Christ. The Immaculate Conception in Roman Catholicism actually refers to the conception of Mary. So it's one generation back that she actually was conceived in such a way where she became sinless. This was a doctrine that was taught here and there. Uh, We have evidence of it as early as, I think, the 11th century. We see it uh, uh, taught again in the 15th century and at different points. But it didn't become actual, official church dogma until December 8th, 1854, uh, when Pope Pius IX actually declared it to be um, part of Roman Catholic um, doctrine. But again, this is a, uh, a different view than what the Protestant tradition holds as to explaining um, Christ's sinlessness. And simply, it's just by some miraculous intervention, uh, Mary's sin does not come into account in the spiritual constitution of Christ. Hypostatic union, again, is the key word here. And so the question, again, is how do these different components of his two natures interact? How do they relate? And the simple answer is, man... It's complicated, right? It's a mystery. Um, John Frame, who's a a theologian, a a wonderful theologian now, uh, raises this question uh, just to put words that were all to all of our thoughts. How can one person be both divine and, whoops, I'm trying to be cool, doing it without looking and not not working. Um, How can one person be both divine and human infinite and finite, visible and visible, eternal and temporal, omnipotent and suffering, omniscient and limited in knowledge. He says, trying to imagine the psychology, the feeling or experience of such a person is baffling. Like we don't even know what to do with that. And so in this section here, I want to briefly try to put together a little bit of how these different components relate to each other. 
I do want to make sure that we have enough time for your questions at the end here, but let me start off by just reviewing a few heresies, because these heresies uh, don't teach us everything, but sometimes they can be clarifying. Uh, a couple of heresies. So one is called Nestorianism. Nestorianism, as you can guess, was uh, based on the teachings of a guy by the name of Nestorius. If I'm not mistaken, he, he himself may not have taught these things, but was later, uh, th- these teachings were attributed to him. Sometimes life ain't fair. Um, but uh, uh, the, the basic error that was being taught here is that the two natures of Christ were completely separated and so you got uh, in the yellow here, just my little schematic here, a little yellow is Christ's human nature and the blue is his uh, divine nature. They're essentially almost, they're so separate, they're basically two different persons living in one body. And so you have a divine that can see, man, I know everything, and then the human that doesn't know things, limited in knowledge, the divine that's like, wow, I can be anywhere, and then the human, and this is all going on in this confused inner dialogue, in this weird sort of internal interaction that Christ may be conscious of or unconscious of, but essentially the two natures are so distinct and so separate that he essentially functions as having two people within his one being. The Council of Chalcedon, as I mentioned earlier, addresses this heresy directly uh, with this language, saying that Christ has two natures, but without division, without separation. So let me be clear. I use this schematic here on the right side to show the correction, but don't be misled to simply uh, depict Christ's nature on one side as being human and the other side as being divine is actually an error as well. Uh, there's, there's an infusion that's mysterious where we can identify in principle that there's a human nature and a divine nature, but it's not like one half of him is vested with his humanness and the other half, one arm is divine and the other arm is, is human. It's, it's not quite like that. But in principle, we can say that his two natures are without division, without separation, coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons. So do you hear how they're directly addressing Nestorianism? Right? Nestorianism said it was basically two persons within one body. They said, no, not parted, separated into two persons, but one and the same son. Here's another heresy, Apollinarianism. Um, which was simply this question, uh, how could a human being be sinless? And of course, that's a reasonable question, one that should be raised. And, um, and so the solution was that Christ has a human body, but not a human soul, because Apollinarius believed that, well, basically our, our bodies might be fine, but it's our souls that are tainted with sin. And if that's what's essential to our humanity, we're sinful as human beings in our souls, then there's no way that Christ could have had a human soul. He had a human body, but not a human soul. And so as the divine was merged together with the human, the one piece that was transplanted, or rather supplanted, replaced in his humanity was a divine soul. And so we have these two parts that are come together, except for that block in the middle that's soul, right? So the divine soul replaces the human soul, but what does that then mean? Christ then was less than human. He was the shell of a human body, but did not actually have a human soul or mind. 
And so Chalcedon to the rescue. There the council declared Christ is truly man of a reasonable soul, not just a body. Reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with us according to the manhood in all things like unto us. So essential to our humanity is that we are body and soul, and therefore if Christ is truly man, that he must be he must have a human body and a human soul. Finally, we have a third heresy called monophysitism. And so physitism, uh, it just reflects the old Greek and Latin word for substance or being, and mono is one. And so basically they compress everything into one nature. Uh, so this is going the opposite direction of what we find, oops, what we find um, in Nestorianism. Uh, so instead of two separate parts, two people, certain, uh, in a sense, within one being. Here we have one nature, one uh, person, one being. So the human nature of Christ was the claim, was changed and absorbed by the divine, fused into a single divine nature. So not yellow, not blue, but greenish, right? Um, Eutychus was another teacher uh, who had a different spin on this, and so it's called Eutychianism, um, where still Christ wasn't uh, human and divine. He was only divine, um, but his claim was that the whole body of Jesus came down from heaven, which meant even his body itself was of the divine nature, and there wasn't anything essentially human um, in the body of Christ. It got swallowed up by the divine. And so here is the correction of the Council of Chalcedon, that the two natures are without confusion. Do you hear that language? Right? So, monophyticism claims that there's a mixing and mingling and a confusion and a blurring of these two natures, one being taken over by another. Here they say, no, there's two natures, but without confusion and without change. The distinction of nature is being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved. And I want to then unpack now a little bit more. And this is just first to give you some categories about uh, sort of errors and how we can set some parameters about how we think about how the two natures of Christ relate to each other. But let me actually unpack it a little bit more and a little bit more practically. Um, Again, raising the question, how do the two natures relate? So Jesus is fully God and fully man. But what we do find in scripture is that occasionally Jesus often limited his divine attributes. And so, for example, in Matthew 26, as Jesus is being arrested, he rebukes his disciples, in particular Peter, who draws out his sword and is ready to fight with force and blood. Jesus says, put your sword back into its place. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. So there's a sense in which Jesus is indicating that he absolutely can, in this instance, exercise his divine omnipotence and kill everybody. He says, I could do it. I could ask my father to do it. I could do it myself. He can, if he wants to, access his divine omnipotence. And yet in this instance, he tells us explicitly he's choosing not to. Which gives us reason to also infer that there are plenty other instances in which Jesus knows that he could access his divine nature and yet chooses not to. 
Another example being right here, Matthew 24. You heard it earlier, but about that day or hour, the hour of his return, his second coming, when he will make all things new, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. So Jesus is standing there talking to his disciples and he's saying, or they're asking, when are you coming back? Jesus says, in all honesty, I don't know. He could know, but he doesn't know. And this is a little bit of the mystery of how he interacts or how the two natures of Christ interacts in the way that he operates, speaks, and moves about his mission. Jesus limits his divine attributes in certain cases, but this is not to be confused with what's often called kenotic theory or kenosis theory. And what that refers to is a place in Philippians 2, verse 7, uh, where Paul is talking about Jesus' humility, where he laid everything down in order to take our place and to die and to rise again. There he says, Christ emptied himself by taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And that word empty, now often in modern translations, it's translated uh, made himself nothing. Uh, but that word in the Greek is kenao, which means made him, uh, which means uh, to empty. And so the question is, well, to what degree did Christ empty himself? And some uh, theologians in the last century, uh, in what's been called canonic theory, said, well, when Christ came to earth, he actually emptied himself of all his divine attributes. And so he actually let go of, and they actually disappeared from him. And therefore, in a sense, he was less than fully God. He was fully human, but he chose to be less than God during the time in which he walked on this earth. And based upon everything that we just said, we might say that Jesus limited his access to or appealed to his full divine attributes, but it does not mean that he actually let them go or left them behind in heaven such that he would actually be rightly described as fully man, but only partially God. So that's where we don't want to go in our description of Christ. I'm going to skip over this segment here a little bit, though I know you're dying to know what it says here. Um, but this is something that I do want to um, point out a little bit more um, and to explain uh, that the nature of the way these attributes um, interact, as the Chalcedonian Declaration just taught us, that each of the parts of Jesus's nature, so the human nature and the divine nature, they retain their own characteristics and attributes. And so it's important for us to understand that Jesus is both human and divine, but we need to be careful in the way that we talk about and describe which attributes of his we are observing or describing and the source of those attributes. So for example, where is Jesus? And so this relates to his divine attribute of uh, omnipresence, right? Where is Jesus? Uh, with respect to his human nature, he is now ascended. He's in heaven, bodily, no longer in the world. So if you were to ask, where is Jesus? You could answer, and if you wanted to be precise, you would say, he is in heaven according to his human nature. Because bodily, that is where he is. And yet at the same time, according to his divine nature, Christ is everywhere. And we read those promises, Matthew 18, Matthew 28. Christ is everywhere and he is in heaven both at the same time. 
Another example, how old is Jesus? How old is Jesus? Well, according to his human nature, at least what we read in the Bible in Luke 3, 23, he's 30 years old. He actually has a birth date. And if you were to do a genetic test in his body, you would, or maybe it's not a genetic test, some fashion that you would be able to discern how old he is, you would say he is 30 years old. And yet, according to his divine nature, he is ageless. In fact, he is eternal. He's 30 years old as a human being. You might say today he's 2019 years old with respect to his human body. I think that's accurate to say. (laughs) And the clock is still ticking and going on and on and on in his now eternal body. But with respect to his divine nature, he is ageless. How strong was Jesus? According to his human nature, when he was born as a baby, he was fragile could be easily hurt, harmed, killed. But as with respect to his divine nature, he is strong enough to uphold the entire universe. Right? Colossians 1. So then we get to a question like this. Did the Son of God die on the cross? Did the Son of God die on the cross? With respect to his human nature, the answer is yes. He was crucified his physical body really did cease in its life and existence. But with respect to his divine nature, the answer is no, because God cannot die. So then is it right for us to be able to say, Jesus died? Yes, Jesus did die. Did the Son of God die? Well, it depends on what you mean. Is it right to say that Jesus, with respect to his human nature, died? The answer is yes. Is it right to say Jesus, with respect to his divine nature, died? The answer is no. But is it right to say Jesus died? The answer is yes, because Jesus' natures don't operate independent of his personhood. What one part of his nature uh, does is what he does as a person. So Jesus did die. In a sense, the Son of God did die, but if you want to be really precise, God himself did not die in the death of Christ, though he did in the humanity of Christ. Pick at that a little bit with me when we get into questions in just a second. Some of this might sound like just anal retentive, splitting of hairs and such, but there's two things that's important about this. Number one, it's good to be accurate so that we don't start to misappropriate or misattribute things about the nature of God or things about the nature of Christ that are not true of him. As if to, for example, suggest that God could actually die, which is not possible in this example here. But it's also important, I think, to be precise in order to unfold together the complexity and really the beauty and the mystery of Christ. The more you're able to say, well, this is true and that's not true and this is how it works, the more you're able to say, wow, isn't this mind-boggling who this person of Jesus is? That he could be all these things all at the same time the more we're able to be precise, that can be misused to sort of judge other people or to puff your own head up because, hey, I've got the right answer and you're saying it wrong. Don't weaponize precise theology, but make it into a source of worship, uh, glorying in the complexity and the mystery of Christ. So this person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ. And so lastly, I just want to end on this point. Why does any of this matter? Because 
He is the Christ, the Savior of the world. And so in what manner does him being one God, I mean truly God, fully God and fully man, combined mysteriously in what's called a hypostatic union, without the parts being confused, without his natures uh, being blended in with each other, still distinct, and yet in one person, who cares? Well, maybe you can come up with some cool things. Let me just share real quickly a couple of things for you. Christ must be truly human to serve as our legal representative and our substitute. Right? The Bible is very clear in the book of Hebrews and in other places. The reason why Christ needed to be human in every respect, yet without sin, is so that he can actually be our representative in the court of God. So that he could die in our place so that his death could actually count as our death. And so that he could live in our place so that his life and righteousness could actually count as our righteousness. So if you have only half a man in the person of Christ, what you have is an illegal representative trying to die and rise again for you. The gospel wouldn't work because Christ would not be an adequate substitute and legal representative in the court of heaven. Christ must be a true human being, must be truly human, also to show us a perfect example of love. I mean, it's an amazing thing. God says, well, love, and then he gives us a real human being to model for us all the human details, not just abstract principles. God doesn't give us principles for love. He gives a person to actually live the details of life and love that we can see and now read about in the pages of Scripture. We have 1 Peter 2, 21. If Christ was only half a human being, then we have all these gaps in our knowledge of what love actually looks like before God and before our neighbor. Christ must be truly human to restore us to our original calling and purpose. What Christ did, what Jesus did in dying and rising again and raising us up together with him is he was restoring us to true humanity. He's the pinnacle of humanity. And that includes not just morally, spiritually being rescued and reunited, reconciled with God. It also includes being restored to our true calling as the royal stewards of creation. Right when God came, said to Adam and Eve in the garden, do what? Be fruitful and multiply. Uh, Cultivate the raw goods of this earth with your work. Uh, Make this world a clear image of me, my character, my uh, nature, uh, my kingdom priorities. Make this world a reflection of who I am. Subdue this earth and rule over it. That's what we were called to do. And the whole story of humanity is us reversing that. Us either abdicating our responsibility or us using our gifts and our work for our own glory to create images of ourselves rather than images of our creator. So in being saved, we're being saved and restored to our original purpose. Your work today, tomorrow, is part of you being restored to everything that God designed you to be. 
and being fruitful and multiplying every corner of this earth. Uh, Christ must be truly human to strengthen us with his high priestly sympathy. You know these verses from Hebrews 2 and 4. Christ is made like us in every way, has struggled, struggled, oh, struggled like we have except for sin, tempted in every way. And that translates into a deep sense of his compassion. Because there's nothing that we struggle with that Christ isn't personally, personally understanding of, empathetic towards, knowledgeable of. Because he's gone through it all. If we had a Christ who was less than truly human, there might be corners of your human experience. Maybe your tears where you say, gosh, my heart is broken. Jesus, I'm praying to you. And he says, look, don't look at me, man. You know, it seems like it stinks to be you, but I'm not really sure about that. No, you have, you have the whole heart, the wholehearted devotion of your Savior on your side because he went through everything that you and I go through. The flip side of it, Christ must be truly God. Now, these reflections pertain primarily uh, to his work on the cross for us. Um, Christ must be truly God, because only a sinless and perfectly righteous being can serve as substitute for sinful humanity, right? And what that means is, uh, if you're just, if I stand in for you and say, hey, God, you know, don't, don't, don't punish Kristen for her sins. Take me instead. You know what God would say? He'd say, you got your own junk to worry about. You got your own sins to be paid for. The only one that actually can serve as a substitute is someone that's sinless and perfectly righteous. That's the man who also was God. Christ must be truly God, secondly, because only infinite God could bear the wrath of God and live. No human being could actually take the infinite torture of hell, of all the cumulative futures of all of us who deserve judgment, who would put their trust in Christ, for whom he would suffer on the cross in those hours that he hung there, No human being alone would have been able to bear what Christ bore, except if he were also God. Thirdly, Christ must be truly God because salvation is of God, prompted by his love and grace, not of man, prompted by our merits. Hey, look how great we are, or or our demands. Hey, God, you better save me. No, Uh, the whole story of the gospel is God's generosity, God's initiative, God giving himself, as John Stott put it, God gave himself, gave himself to save us from himself. God is the chief actor in the person of Christ in his dying and his rising for us. Christ must be truly God because no mere human being's temporal suffering can exhaust the eternal penalty merited by sin And no single person's suffering can exhaust the penalty merited by a multitude. Now, this I'm grabbing language uh, from an old theologian that I was reading earlier from the mid-19th century. And basically, here's the argument. Uh, uh, Our sin merits eternal punishment because our sins are against an eternal, infinite God. And the reason why we don't merit five minutes of punishment or five years or 500 years and then we're done, is because our punishment actually ought to be eternal. So great is our offense. And so you can't just take then a finite person and stand in and say, well, here, let me suffer in his place or her place for a few minutes, for a few hours. How could a mere man, even on the cross, even suffering hell for three hours, for six hours, for nine hours, for 12, how can that possibly add up to 
what you actually deserve, which is an eternity of punishment, unless you are actually eternal yourself, and that is God. And that's up to this point, I was talking about one person. How could you do that for a multitude of people? Unless you are actually in your being, infinite in your capacity, able to suffer eternally, even in a couple hours time for the whole of humanity, all those who would put their trust in Christ. Lastly, Christ must be truly God because only God himself, the fountain of life, could impart eternal life to all of humanity. And uh, let me just push us off to the edge here so that we can just talk about this a little bit. And this brings us to just this understanding the person of Jesus is truly God, truly man, yet one, one Christ. Uh, Friends, there's a lot of ways in which we can treat Christology as if it's just sort of like the science project. Ooh, neato, isn't that so cool? Or this intellectual endeavor. Hey, isn't that so neat that we can philosophize about the nature of Jesus and draw colorful diagrams and hey, it's cool and point fingers at all these heretics in the past. Oh, cool, hey. What's the whole point of this? It's the gospel. Jesus could not have saved us or rescued this world if he was not precisely this. Uh, there, there would be no good news without a Christology that describes Christ perfectly as this. Fully God, fully man, but in one person. And now let's talk about it. What questions do you have? You got a couple minutes. Yeah, Abby, what's up? You mean, no, because he's, he's one in the same, but I guess maybe the important thing is to say that he is God and man, and yet his godness is not contained by his human body, right? Because Jesus is where right now? He's in heaven at the right hand of the Father, but he's also here. So obviously, his God the Son is able to operate outside of the confines of his physical body, yet without being two separate persons or two separate beings. And so it's a mystery exactly how that works, but he is both and, both eternal and everywhere and all those things as well as physically embodied. So if you were to see him right this very minute, and you will one day if you're in Christ, praise God, look forward to that day, he will look like a human being. Now, a little different in a lot of ways, but still physical as we are physical. Question in the back there? Yeah. Okay, you snuck in three questions in there, brother. <laughs> um, let me try to give you one second on, on, on uh, each of them. Now I'm forgetting the, 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 the first one. Uh, remind me real quick, the first one. Oh, fallenness, yeah. Um, 
So when we say sinless, we're talking about um, personal moral culpability. Um, there, so he, his soul was not um, operating out of selfish motives or desires or selfish behaviors and, and such like that, but his body was fallen in the sense that it was impacted by the effects of the fall as all human bodies are, meaning he got tired, entropy. He, he, he died. He was mortal in his human body. He got sick. But those are not moral issues, right? You're not sinning um, by catching a cold. Um, and so th- th- that's sort of the distinction there. Um, th- th- I think the way to construe what you were saying is he, Jesus um, could sin theoretically, there was always the possibility. That's why it's, it is an amazing thing that Jesus could be tempted and yet without sin because he could have. And yet, in a sense, he could not have because God cannot sin and, and he would have then exploded, ceased to be God, right? And so I think that's where we can talk in terms of these different natures. With respect to his human nature, he actually had the capacity to sin. With respect to his divine nature, he did not have the capacity to sin. With respect to just Jesus, period, it's amazing that he didn't. Other question over here. Yes, in front, in the back, yeah. To what extent does the Old Testament prepare us for this? Um, it doesn't because so much, it doesn't much. I mean, we have places like Isaiah 9-6, which we uh, uh, just um, repeated again and again throughout the Christmas season. Uh, to us, a child is given, a son is born, and he will be called Mighty God, right? So there's some glimpses of some union of human childness with divine nature in some fashion. Um, same thing with places like Isaiah 53 and where we see the sacrifices of Christ prefigured in different parts of the Old Testament. But all of this gets developed in a totally new way um, once we actually have the incarnate Savior in front of us. Jesus' own words testifying to his inner life as well as his understanding of his relationship with the Heavenly Father. Um, and then the apostles giving us backwards reflection on the relationship between all those things. Yeah, in the back. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, no, that's helpful, right? Because there's a sense in which even if God the Father knows something, if Jesus is saying, I don't know it, but God the Father does, then God does know it because God is both Father, Son, I mean, Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, but I think it's important to say the Father knows, but in a sense, the Son also knows too. There's not a barrier of knowledge in the Godhead between Father, Son, and Spirit either. It's like they're keeping secrets from each other? No. So even God the Son himself does have such knowledge, and certainly even in his incarnate form could have access to that knowledge. But in those instances, he says, I will not. I will not call down the angels to kill you, to defend myself, and I will not access that knowledge to know when I'm coming back. But he could, and now he does. It's a good question, though, right? Jan? Yeah. If it's really crazy, this might be the last one. Yeah. 
Ja. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you are crazy. Um, no, I, I, I actually am following you. I don't know that I know the answer to it, right? Because it's like, is there a different clock, you know, running? Yeah, yeah. You mean if and when we're in heaven, you mean? Yeah, and I think the answer is yes and no, right? Because the Bible is very clear with, with God. A thousand years is like a blink in an, of an eye, right? So he's timeless and he experiences all things instantly like it's present, right? Which is mind-boggling. Now, when we're in heaven, we will be wrapped up into a timeless-ish kind of existence. But uh, uh, let me qualify in two things. One, in being glorified in heaven, it doesn't mean we are deified, so we will not be like God in every way. And so there still will be limitations to us. That's going to be our, a, there's going to be a continuing finiteness to us as well. And I imagine that will uh, impact the way that we experience time. Secondly, theologians like Jonathan Edwards actually does believe that heaven will be measured by time for all of eternity. And he would say that is, uh, that is an important feature of heaven so that we know uh, that it's not one big blur of existence, but rather there actually is the possibility of growing in eternal joy and ever-increasing joy because we are learning more about the glory of Christ every moment, one moment more than the past moment. We have seen more of the beauty of Jesus, more of the, we've experienced more of the joy of being in perfect union with God. And so there is actually a sequential nature that makes heaven not just perfection, but perfection that's ever growing perfectly in our experience. And that can only be so if there's some function of time. We can talk. We can talk some more. And actually, I'm going to wrap it up here. I would be happy to keep fielding questions if you want to come up and ask me things. Talk amongst yourselves. I would love for you to ponder the questions that are on your sheets that I threw up there. Um, just do what, what do we in our generation tend towards? Uh, loving Christ's humanity more than his divinity or vice versa? Or maybe forgetting one over the other? What heresies do we tend towards? What, what, do you, what do you think our generation is weak in? What do we need to guard against forgetting as we try to retain the fullness of the biblical witness about who Christ really is as truly God and truly man? And what do we gain uh, more positively by embracing this fullness of Christ? What difference would it make for, to you, in other words, to know that Christ is truly God, truly man, in one person and forever? Well, hopefully the answer to that is something like more worship, a changed life, a better neighbor, a better roommate, 
uh, a more humble person. Uh, connect the dots, spend some time on that so this isn't just knowledge that puffs up, uh, but rather that it turns into love that builds up. All right, let me pray and we're out of here. Jesus, thank you for this time and these friends learning together. I pray your blessing upon them. Please, Lord, anything of value that was uh, beautiful, true, uh, profitable in this time, please bear fruit, change our lives uh, because of who you are and our encounters with you according to your word. And so bless us now and keep us warm and safe, especially this weekend with a storm coming our way. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Yes. We have, as you may have heard, we have a special event coming up on the 15th and 16th, Friday and Saturday um, of uh, February.